and we're turning to chapter 6. Those of you who worship with us uh, frequently will have heard something of this series. So this is number 6 in a series that um, we've been taking from time to time when I'm here. And last week uh, we saw what would have been, I'm sure, an incredible experience in the life of Moses, who's still being shaped uh, by, I'm sure, what happened to him. He was a very resourceful guy, very powerful guy. Uh, he's used to doing things with some strength himself. He was a young prince, mighty in word and deed. We, we find even when he fled from Egypt, it says he arrived and there were some shepherds uh, feeding their flock uh, and he helped some women. He got rid of these several shepherds. I mean, he's, he's a powerful guy. He sorts things out. And uh, chapter 5 He's beginning to move into the ministry God's called him to, and he starts with uh, his incredible statement, Thus says the Lord, let my people go. And then we looked at it last week and saw how by the end of the chapter, he says to God, Why did you ever send me? You've not delivered your people at all. And here a man is in deep despair, confusion, I would think, wondering what on earth this is about. God's called him. God's commissioned him, and he seems to be totally impotent, almost like deserted. Where's God? And the huge why question, why did you do this to me? Why I followed you, I I, I did what you told me to do, and and look what's happened, nothing at all. And we looked at that, we haven't time to recap all that. Uh, It's all online if you want to go back and catch up. But uh, we're going to go on to the way God answered him in Exodus 6, and today we're going to actually see what I'm calling God's declaration of intent. All right, you get it in these first eight verses, God's declaration of intent. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the I am, actually. That's what it means. That's what it says. I am the I am. I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, I am, I didn't make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I've remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And I will take you for my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give you, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the joy. We've experienced this morning in coming to you, Lord, delighting in your immediacy, your being for us now. Lord, we just invite now the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. Come, 
Holy Spirit, be our teacher. Please lead us into truth. We thank you that you promised, Lord Jesus, this one would come alongside. You promised he would be our teacher. So come, Holy Spirit. Please teach us inwardly. Teach us for our lives in this 21st century from this strange Old Testament story. Make it live to us, we pray, Father. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we get a distraught man who's uh, so far done what God told him to do, but it's led to uh, disaster. Nothing's happened as he expected it to. Uh, We saw how God answered that, but the man must have been as low as you can get, really. And he's going to discover something quite phenomenal in this chapter. Now, before he'd he'd met with resistance, and uh, you remember he went out to help uh, two Israelites who were arguing with one another. Uh, He's trying to save them, trying to help them, trying to rescue them. And when he goes to help them, they turn around to him and effectively say, Who are you? Who are you? And and Moses is terrified and runs for his life. He goes into the desert because there's no resources behind who are you. But now we're getting the question when, God, uh, when uh, Moses comes to Pharaoh and speaks to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Thus says the Lord, who is the Lord? And so you get a very different answer now. Before we're saying, who are you, Moses? Well, I'm nobody, I've got no resources, I may be a prince, I may be strong, I may have powerful shoulders, but when it comes to it, I've got nothing to bring. When you go as the servant of the Lord, it's a different deal. So Moses is now a commissioned man. He's been told by God to go. So when the question comes, who is the Lord? He obviously has to go back to the Lord and begin to ask the Lord because he's now a man representing God. He's there representing another. And he gets an encounter with this God. And to be honest, as you go through Exodus and beyond, this is what's happening. There's an unveiling of who is this God. Moses, Moses says to him, who are you, Lord? Who shall I say? And, and God gives this very strange, enigmatic answer, I am who I am. I mean, it's like, who are you then? And, and we're going to get to know who he is by what he does, by the demonstration of power, which really breaks out now, right through the book of Exodus. He begins to manifest who he is. We begin to know who he is. It's a bit like that with the disciples. The disciples stumble on this amazing leader, teacher, healer, prophet, voice. They follow him and, and, and they begin to wonder, who is he? And then there comes a moment when they're in the stormy boat. And he commands the storm, be still. And they say, who is this guy? Who is he? And there's an ongoing, well, who is he? And he makes himself known through things he does. And actually, dear friends, it's a bit like that for us. You first hear about Jesus, and maybe you heard from your parents, or you heard from a teacher, or you, went, you got some kind of information, but you're getting to know him. It's an ongoing experience. You get to know him as he acts on your behalf, as he does things you don't anticipate. It's in life that you're getting to know him all the time. You're getting to experience him. You get beyond what's written on the page into your own knowledge of him, which is always consistent was on the page. But here Moses is going to get to know him because he's between a rock and a hard place. Go, but you can't. And then you turn back. Ah, oh, God himself begins to speak. 
And he gives them this extraordinary answer. First of all, he says, this is my identity. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. In other words, I'm a covenant-keeping God. I made promises to Abraham. I promised him there would be a great purpose for his people, for the nation that would come from his loins. I'm keeping my promise. I'm a God who keeps my promise. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I made them promises. That's who I am. I'm consistent with what I said. I don't forget all those years have slipped by. And actually God said to Abraham that they will be in captivity for 400 years. God said this before. Now he's being faithful to what he said. But then he says, I'm going to go on now and reveal to you by my new name, as it were. I am. Now, when it says by my new name, it's like I'm now going to invest property. I'm going to give, I'm going to give content to that name. It's not like that name would never been heard before. That becomes clear. I won't get into the detail of that now. But he's going to make it clear by the things that he does. He's going to do phenomenal things. And so he begins to answer, and if you uh, read through the story with me there, he's saying, he says, seven I wills. I just read to you, he says, I am the Lord. Then he says, seven I wills. I will, I will, I will. And then he ends with, I am the Lord. And so he says, first of all, three under one heading, deliverance. I will bring you out. I will deliver you from bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. That's deliverance. Secondly, identity. I'll take you for my people. And I'll be your God. And thirdly, for inheritance. I'll bring you into the land and give it to you for possession. So it's deliverance from what you used to be. A new identity I'll give you and a new future that you could never have imagined that lies before you. A possession and inheritance that lies before you. So that's the grand sweep, actually, of the Bible story, which becomes real again in the New Testament, as we'll see as we go on. Don't forget, we've said this from time to time, all these things happen for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. That's what it says in the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians 10, for instance, Paul gives this overview of what happened with the people under Moses. And then he says this, this all happened to them for our instruction. It happened to these two million people, this small group. But it's the, the principles, they're all written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages, when there'll be a vast church, millions of Christians in China, millions of Christians in South America, millions of Christians in Africa and across the nations, millions of Christians, the ends of the ages, the people of the end time, all these things that happened, this little crowd of two million is recorded to instruct us. There are principles there relevant to us. Experiences that Moses goes through, experiences that the nation goes through, they're all there to instruct us. So first of all, he says, I will deliver you. So I'm going to act. So the first thing we encounter is the total sovereignty of God. Pharaoh, ignorant as he is at the moment, says, who is the Lord? I've never heard of the Lord. I am almighty Pharaoh. Who is the I am? I don't know who he is at all. But the reality is that this mighty God is going to demonstrate who he is. And God's 
sovereignty is something that stands out right through the scripture, that he initiates, he does what he will. He can say, I will, I will. He doesn't say, I will negotiate with Pharaoh. He doesn't say, I'll see how I get on with him. He doesn't say, I'll see how he responds to me. He says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Because he is sovereign. He does what he wills. And it says so plainly, for instance, in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. It's great to know that. Our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. It's important for us to know that, beloved, in our lives. He's absolutely sovereign. He works out his plan. doesn't matter how powerful Pharaoh seems to be. doesn't matter how much we seem to be tossed from place to place. He is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. He opens doors. He says, I open, no one can shut. I shut, no one can open. I'm the Lord. I'm I'm totally in authority. I have absolute power. It's important for us to know that. That's what gives security to us when we come worshipping. When we sing things about, you're my rock. You're all that I need you to be. That's putting... That's got to translate, beloved, in your daily life, in our job situation... all kinds of things we can't understand, this has to translate right down into your modern life. The Lord reigns. He does what he pleases. And you'll find that he, he says things like this again and again throughout the scriptures. So you find, for instance, in Isaiah and in chapter 46 and verse 9, it says, I am God. There is no other. I'm God. There's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's that's the God he is. I will do all these things. And again, you'll find in Isaiah 41, he begins to mock the other gods. And, and, And Isaiah's allowed to prophesy these things. He says to these other gods, present your case, bring forth your arguments, declare things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. And then he says this, behold, you are of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. One of the things about the authentic God is he knows the future. Of course, there have been uh, sometimes more bod- modern uh, Bible teachers who have said, well, Isaiah, for instance, must have been written later. The second part of Isaiah must have been written later because it says in advance things that were going to happen. So it must have been written after it happened. And the whole book of Daniel, people have put a, a very late date on the book of Daniel because Daniel writes in advance about extraordinary things that are going to happen. So he sort of must have written it later. But the whole point of the Bible is that this God can speak way in advance of what's going to happen. Because he's ruling all things. And so our Old Testaments are full of details, for instance, about Jesus. That he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would be crucified. He would, his hands and feet would be pierced. All this is said before crucifixion had even been invented. That, he, that his clothes would be uh, gambled for. All signs of kinds of de- little details because the law can speak in advance. He is totally enthroned. He's in charge. He is the Lord. And Moses, who's now heartbroken because, well, I, I said to this and I said that and nothing happened. What's the point? 
and he's having an encounter with God now. Rather like Job has this encounter with God. He's just, wow, God, you're so great. And beloved, we, we just need to know this is the God we, we serve. He's not trying hard. We're not into some kind of dualism. We wonder who will win. Will Satan win or God win? No, he really is the Lord. He works details out. He makes things work together for good. And to know these things brings such peace to us. It brings certainty to us. It brings comfort to us. We must know this awesome God. And to be a believer is to know the authentic God. Not, you see, we can make up fairly sentimental thoughts about God. Sometimes you hear sentimental songs sung. But to get out of truth builds confidence into your life. So God is saying, I will do these things. I will deliver you. He's speaking to people totally in bondage. I will bring you out from under centuries of bondage. We see movie, we see documentary, we see news on our televisions of these poor refugee figures who've got nothing. And it's very graphic. We see it before us. But we're talking here about people who would have been rather like that. No possessions, no one will stand for them, being tossed about, they're just slaves. Total futility of it. Crushed people. Overwhelmed people. They've no power. They've got no strings they can pull. No influence. And God says, I will bring you out supernaturally. And we'll see as we go through the story that God is unafraid to let the thing build up and build up and build up. And for Pharaoh to apparently have ability to frustrate. But even that, and especially we read right through the Bible, right into the New Testament, God allowed all these things to happen so they have a massive demonstration of his ultimate power. They would break open the Red Sea, he would pull them out, he'd destroy uh, Egypt's armies. Even the setbacks, even the delays were God's plan for a massive display and demonstration that would always be talked about and give identity to the Israelite people. Who are these Jewish people? Well, we were slaves and God took us out when we had nothing. <laughs> we had no power. We couldn't say, let's get our artillery going. They're slaves. And he just picked them up and brought them out. And that's how he makes himself known. I'm a God who can take you out from what seems overwhelming to you. What seems impossible, things that are crushing you at the moment, things that you think, well, this is hopeless, there's no way through this. We have a God who can rescue you from impossible situations, locked in things. Thinking, we can't do this with the house, we can't do this with the family, we can't. God can break out. He's a God like that. He's a powerful God. He can break through. And this is the God Moses needs to know who he's, who he's serving. He's no longer a private individual. He's not having a go. He is accountable to the Most High God. And so are we. We're not having a go. We're not saying, well, let's have a church. We, we, we can't start a church. Only God can do that. God's gathered. And as we see our dear friends in Istanbul, the awareness, no, God called us. God persuaded us. God got hold of that beautiful little family and said, go to Istanbul. You think, well, it's not, oh, that's a good idea. No, it's like we can't do anything else. 
all the discomfort, all the questions, all the, what are you doing with your lives? It's a sense, no, no, we're trapped by God. And that awareness that we're in God's hands gives us a phenomenal authority. That it's not our idea, it's not our idea to serve God, not our idea to start a church. It's the commission of God. And God will use it, God will own it, God will break through. So he has to understand that God is a God of great power, he can even take slaves and change their situation. Now Moses is going to understand, it's not me just having a go. He made a great choice earlier when he said, no, I won't be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I give up this short-term world of apparent riches because I can see through it. And he got into God's world, but he didn't quite understand yet what it was to be God's servant. And God says to him, what's that in your hand? Well, it's a stick, a rod, a staff. Throw it on the ground. It becomes a serpent. It's just his stick. But as you follow the story through, it becomes the rod of God. And it can open the Red Sea. When God gets hold of us, us fruitless sticks, and says, now look, you abide in me, and I in you, I can change your life. I give your life meaning, purpose, direction, significance, all my energy. I take what seems random, just a stick he used. And you read the story, the rod of God, lift the rod over the Red Sea, lift the rod over this, lift the... And suddenly this stick, this life, this nothing, Moses is going to become the servant of God. It's a very different deal. He's not a man having a go anymore. Suddenly, he's had to hit the wall. I can't do this. No, I know you can't do it. But I can. I can, and you're going to get to know me more and more. You're going to get to see what I can do. And beloved, that is much of the believer's life, that we hit situations and setbacks, and we get cast on him again, and we find out what he can do. And we get again and again lifted into his world of possibility, out of our world of impossibility. And that's the story here. I, I will set you free. I will take you out from under. I will stop you being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I'll do it. I'll set you totally free. And I guess when they first heard, as we read the passage on, you'd find they were hardly able to cope with this news. But nevertheless, it happens. It all seems so impossible. They're just refugees but they become totally freed and a great army is overwhelmed completely and it's great glory to God. And as they go through the Red Sea, Moses sings what we could call Psalm number one. They go through the Red Sea and Moses sings, Who is like unto you, Lord? Glorious in holiness. The Lord's a man of war. He fought for us. And there's a sense of wonder, which is what worship's all about. So great to sing songs that express that wonder. Lord, you're amazing. What an amazing God you are. It's an expression of our sense of, we know a wonderful God. And we get to know him when he breaks through. He does stuff for us. He demonstrates his power. I will bring you out. And he does. We'll go through these stories as we go forward. But this is a prophetic statement in advance. Because God's able to do that. This will happen. This will happen. The second thing is, is that he gives them a new identity. You will be my people, not just ex-slaves, not just escapees. You will be my people. 
I will be your God. You will be uniquely mine. It's later on it says you will be my special treasure. He uses quite extraordinary language. He says, you only have I known of all the peoples of the earth. You're my special treasure. It's like God had fallen in love. It's like God gave his heart to these people. And in fact, that is the language that he uses. He says, I, often later in the psalm, in the, in the later prophets, he says, when you were a child, I taught you to walk. I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. There's such tenderness. It's incredibly beautiful. It's like, I, I delighted in you. You're my child. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so this is a very special nation that has God's absolute commitment to them and is given a completely new identity. He is the God of Israel. Now, it's going to become more and more clear as the story goes on. He's the God of the whole earth. And Egypt's Pharaoh has to honor him. He actually, he actually says to Moses, please bless me. Before Moses says, bless me. You think, amazing that you should say that to Pharaoh, uh, to Moses. This understanding that somehow these people have a potential to bless. They're a unique nation. But God says, I will bless you. I'll be with you. You're my people. God exclusively giving himself to them. You only have I known of all the families on the earth. God's commitment to them is absolute. I'll guide you like a shepherd. I'll feed you. Even when they're rebellion and they're turning back from entering the land, which they could have done in 11, it was an 11 day journey. It took 40 years. 11 days. They could have just got there in 11 days. But even though they were backslidden and going right, he fed them for 40 years. There was water to drink in the desert for 40 years. Their clothes didn't wear out. He looked after them. He led them. He defended them. He fought for them. Even when it comes to this Red Sea crossing, and it says the pillar of glory went ahead of them, and then the pillar of glory went behind them and protected them, and Egypt's army comes into the, into the sea, and suddenly it says their chariots are getting caught, and it says the Lord is fighting for them. It's almost like angels go down with spanners and do their chariots up. You know, hey, what's happening? And they recognize it. The Lord is fighting for them. He's their God. He belongs to them. He'll fight for them. Beloved, God will fight for you. He'll fight for you. That's the kind of promise he makes in the New Testament. I'm the God who opens doors and no one can shut them. I shut doors, no one can open them. And I'll do it for you. I'll fight for you. And even when it says at one point, you will be ten days in prison. So why? Why in prison for ten days? But let me say this. Anybody tries to make it eleven days, they won't be able to. Because when God says... When God says, when I open, no one can shut it. When Peter's in prison, they say, we're going to kill you tomorrow. No, they pray, and the prison door opens. God acts for his people. If he doesn't act for us, what's the point? He's a God who acts for us, he demonstrates power for us, and he calls us uniquely his. I taught you to walk. I can still remember teaching my, uh, my oldest, actually, I remember my oldest. I remember the day he started walking. It's exciting, isn't it? There's a tenderness about it. I've taught you to walk. God's tender love for us 
He remembers detail. I betrothed you to myself. Language that's used. A kind of experiences of the most tender love that our human life knows, like father with a son. But he says, I betrothed you to myself in love. So it's like you're my wife, my bride. And later in the book of Hosea, when they begin to turn and, and, and be sinful, he, he regards it as like you're being adulterous. You're mine. I betrothed you. you. You belong to me. I'm your God. You're my people. So there's an incredible intimacy. You're my special treasure. I delight in you. So these people, they're being rescued from slavery. They've been given a completely new identity. You are my bride. You are my child. I will be your God. And then finally, he says, I'll bring you into the land. I will give it to you for an inheritance. So here these slaves who own nothing, I told you you're going to have possessions. They've never had possessions. You're going to sow fields. They've never done that. They're just slaves. They've never owned anything. Through the wilderness, they never planted a seed. But in the land... You're going you're gonna to sow seed. In fact, I'll give you vineyards you've not planted. I'll give you cities you've not built. I'll, I'll give you... A, it's like you just enter into it. And it's all free. I, I've created it for you. And I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Now, again and again, you'll find the giving of these things turn on people that God raises up. So God says to Joshua... After Moses' ministry is full finished, he speaks to Joshua and says, You, you Joshua, will give them the land that I promised to give them. What, me? Yes, you. I promised to give it to them. You will give it to them. See, beloved, that's how he, that's how he draws us in. God has an intention. God has an intention for Istanbul. God has an intention for Poland. It's a nation after nation. But he, he, he catches us and involves us. And then says to us, you will give what I promise to give. So, most, so Paul comes to Corinth and he's scared. And Corinth is a great modern city in that generation. And it says Paul's troubled in the night. And Jesus comes to him and says, don't be frightened, Paul. I've got many people in this city. Well, you haven't even gotten that. We haven't got that far yet. No, I've got many people there. See, God can speak in advance. I've got many people there. And Paul's encouraged and moves into Corinth. And, and people, yes, they get born again. The church gets formed. God's purpose marches forward. But he engages with people. So God, God is the one moving. God, but he engages. He engages with Moses. It's Moses we're looking at. But I'm going to do it. Later it'll be Joshua. You will give it. Your leadership faith, your ability to inspire others, your encouragement to them, your truth faithfulness to me, you're going to lead these people into this. So God's purposes get worked out in lives. In people that say, yes, Lord. People say, Father, if that's what you want to do with my life, I give you my life. If you want me working in this office, if you want me working in this school, if you want me working in this hospital, I'm here for you, Jesus. There are things you want to do here. People you want to touch here. But I'm here for you. So Moses moves on from being heartbroken to understanding I'm here as God's representative. God's got his intention. I'm here on his behalf. I will give you an inheritance. I'll give it to you. 
So Moses learns what it is to be the servant of God. And all these things are so true for us as believers now. This imagery of slavery to new identity to inheritance. That could be written over the church. The Bible says quite plainly that before we become Christians, we were slaves. We were dead, it says, in trespasses and sins. It says when, when we were without strength, Christ died. For the, we couldn't do it ourselves. While we were weak, without strength, we couldn't do anything. We're slaves. It says in Ephesians 2 that we walked in what? Well, we walked according to the course of the world, among all the other slaves. We walked under the power of the prince of the air. All kinds of devilish forces that impose themselves on people. There's, there, there's devilish power in our world. People who will just suddenly feel themselves full of hatred and kill. The sort of stuff that's on our television these days. Think, how can a human being be like that? And the Bible says quite plainly that you walked according to the course of this world under the power of these spirits that are at work that can capture people, that can totally dominate them. They can, afterwards, they may say, I don't know why I did such a thing. But if you snatch them out of it and put them in another context, and they look back, think, whatever possessed me? The work of darkness, we're vulnerable to that. Until you know Christ, you're vulnerable to all kinds of wickedness. We're hopeless, we're slaves. It says that we're slaves of our own flesh. There are desires in us that can just force us into stuff. Appetites that get inflamed. We're just, we're slaves. We follow the crowd. We're vulnerable to satanic things. Even in our flesh, there's a, an agreement to sin. We're slaves. And then God, in the New Testament, says, I'll redeem you with a mighty hand. Jesus came as the Redeemer. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, another one like me will come. Another one like me. When he comes, hear him. On the mountain of transfiguration, the father says, this is my son, in whom I'm, all, I'm well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. It's like, a, it's like a hint. He's the one. He's the one like Moses. He's the one who will bring deliverance. He is the ultimate redeemer. And with a mighty, outstretched arm, I'll deliver you. And by great judgments, it says in the passage, I'll deliver you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. And that's what happened at the cross. Isaiah 52 says, To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It talks about him growing up as a tender plant. Then great judgments would fall on Jesus. And a great act of redemption as he bore our guilt, he bore our shame, he paid our debt. He said, I've come not to be served, but to serve, to lay down my life a ransom. I'll pay the debt. He's redeemed us. Hallelujah. We also have a redeemer who can bring us out from hopelessness, from feeling crushed, from feeling, is there any way out? Jesus comes to set us free. And then Jesus gives us a new identity. As many as received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. Now the church is called the Bride of Christ. Now the church is given all these Old Testament names, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. All these unique titles 
that were given to Israel when they were brought out of Egypt and now given to the church. My delight is in you. So I'll call you by a new name. My delight is in you, my special treasure. It's so important to know that. You know, even when you wake in the morning to come to God and say, Lord, thank you, I'm your special treasure. I'm your special treasure. I knew a South African family, they were such fun to visit. I used to visit them often. And uh, they had three boys. And the little one was such a fun little rascal. And I was in the house once. And uh, while we were there, there was this kind of smash that came from the kitchen. And uh, just crash. And this little boy came running in to his mother and said, uh, Mummy, uh, your special treasure has just had an accident in the kitchen. <laughs> She had got him to understand, you're my special treasure. And he thought, I'll play on that. Your special treasure. <laughs> Do you play on that? You know, I'm your special treasure. It's no good having words like that floating around. You want to get them right into your heart. I'm his special treasure. And he's the Lord of everything. And the Lord of everything has me in his heart. I'm his special treasure. He delights in me. He calls me, you're my bride. Beloved, these words need to nourish our hearts. See, sometimes as a pastor, you can be counseling someone and they say, I don't think God really loves me. What are you talking about? It's like ignoring. It's like ignoring the whole Bible. So you just live from your feelings. I don't feel very good today. No, don't live from your feelings. Live from truth. Let truth inform you, shape you. Understand, I am delighted in. I sing often that lovely song of Graham Kendricks, the last line of which is this, the greatest thing of all, O Lord, I see, you delight in me. I mean, I sing that nearly every day. I sing songs like that. I treasure these wonderful things. God, you love me. You're for me. Beloved, if you don't feed on those kind of truths, you're not taking seriously the new identities given you. You're my special treasure. You're beloved. You're chosen. You're delighted in. That's God's attitude. We're not saying, well, I don't feel like prayer this morning. God doesn't. No, no. Come on, let's get, let truth shape your thinking. Let truth fortify you. Put on that armor. Put on that breastplate. Hold up that shield. Don't be yielding every time I don't feel. I feel low. Things didn't work out the way they should. It's all God's abandoned. No, I will, I will, I will. I'm a covenant-keeping God. And I treasure you. I give you a completely new identity. You were a sinner. Now you're in Christ. I was thinking again this morning, that lovely passage where Jacob hid himself in Esau's clothing. And, and his father accepted him because he thought he was the son he delighted in. And, uh, you know, I can imagine, it's, just, it's Esau's fragrance. You know, it's Esau's hairy arms. And I feel like saying to God, Lord, stick your fingers into those hairy arms. Catch that fragrance. All that beautiful obedience Jesus did. All that total devotion to you all that spotless tender magnificent catch it Lord because I'm hiding in there that's my new identity I'm accepted in the beloved that's who I am that's who you are you are in Christ he's made to you everything you need you see if we don't take to ourselves what God says is our new identity 
We're missing the point. I'll rescue you. I'll give you a new identity. You're my treasure. And I'll be your God. And finally, I'll bring you into an inheritance. Well, it says in the Bible, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It's not even entered the heart of man what God's prepared. An inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Hallelujah. This is the story of the Bible. Slaves, new identity, inheritance. Things you've not understood. Things you could never comprehend. New body, new heavens, new earth. It lies before us. Paul could say this, that the pressures of this world are nothing, nothing compared with the glory that's going to follow. And he experienced such beatings and shipwrecks and heartaches and agonies. He said, it's nothing. It's nothing. (laughs) It's like that uh, woman whose name suddenly won't come to mind, who said the the famous lady from India who poured out her life. Mother Teresa, thank you so much. Mother, thank you. I like corporate worship. Eh? Mother Teresa said, when you get to glory, when you look back on the world, it'll be like one night in a bad hotel. <laughs> Not worth comparing with the glory, the inheritance, what lies before us. And that, that, is the, that is the tension of scripture. You used to be a slave, you're not anymore. You're a child, you're inheriting. You're going through this journey. There's an inheritance that lies before. There's a possession that God has for every one of us, stored up for us, new heavens, new earth. In view of these things, God wants us to have a courageous attitude. I'm just working through Romans myself. Got to Romans 8 this week, and just that classic passage in Romans 8 where Paul, I mean, he's just like a terrific crescendo of glory at the end of Romans 8, when he, he says, God makes everything work together. Who, what should we say for these th- against, to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? Then he says this, just as it's written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer. The old King James says we're more than conquerors. Commentary I was looking at says it's a a word that's almost impossible to translate because he kind of builds several Greek words together. We are more than conquerors. And he said it's like we are excessively victorious through him who loved us. We're excessively victorious. Why? Well, we do have pressure. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We know, we know these experiences of setback, disappointment, troubles. But he says, no, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, principalities or powers, things present, things to come, height or depth or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That sense of absolute security. That God is enthroned, God will guide, God will lead, God will take care of us. He's our God, we're his children. He's going to usher us into glory, eternal glory. And so the Moses we looked at last week with his desolation really has an encounter with a God 
of utter sovereignty, total faithfulness, he will bring them out. He will be their God. He will bring them in. And in fact, Moses is put on his feet again to go on with this conflict that's going to lie before him with Pharaoh and the outbringing of these people. Let's stand to pray.